Hello everyone and welcome to season two of the FarmSense podcast. My name is Sawa Shah, one of the co-founders of FarmSense, a pharmacist and a medical student, and I'll be today's host. So I'm delighted to announce our guest speaker today, Dr. Ajay Verma. So Ajay is a consultant gastroenterologist and physician, and I'm sure that a lot of you already know about Ajay from his educational tweet his gastro twirls and also Ajay just generally being a very prominent figure in the medical world with his support and empowerment for others. Although this is the first time me talking to Ajay I've already learned a great deal from him and I hope throughout this episode you all can do too and hopefully we can improve patient care. So thank you for joining us today Ajay. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Uh, hi, thanks, Sawa. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, that's a very kind introduction there. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a consultant gastroenterologist and physician. I'm, I'm based in uh, Kettering General Hospital, which is in Northamptonshire. Uh, I've been a consultant now just shy of seven years. Uh, and I've had various other roles as well. So I'm the director of research at, at our organization. I'm also a CCIO, which is a Chief Clinical Information Officer, so the link between the clinical workforce and the IT department as we go for a full digital EPR. Um, we started off pretty naive, and now we're, we're accelerating very fast to full digital. Uh, and I've been involved with a few national roles. I was involved with the Royal College for many years, for five years, as chair of the New Consultants Committee. Uh, and I was on the BSG Working Group for the Iron Deficiency Anemia Guidelines. It sounds like you're really busy, so thanks for taking the time out to do this episode with myself. So I I think it's important um, because a lot of our listeners would be students or junior doctors just to get a working picture of your role as a consultant gastroenterologist. So in terms of a working week, how, how, how does that work then for yourself? So I'll give you, I'll give it over a fortnight. That's probably a good way. So last Monday, I did all day clinic on Monday. Uh, Tuesday morning is ERCP list and Tuesday afternoon would be uh, the cancer MDT for uh, colorectal and hepatobiliary. Um, I'm also, I was on call in the evenings for GI bleed Monday and Tuesday night. Uh, Wednesday morning, I do a endoscopy list, a bowel cancer endoscopy list. Um, Wednesday afternoon is kind of admin and catching up. Thursday morning's another endoscopy list, which may, might be symptomatic patients or vetting. Again, the CCIO and research work in the afternoon. And then Friday is a bit of a catch-up day. Lots of meetings, uh, education, training, etc. This week, I'm general medical on call. So um, doing my acute take, which I don't do that often now. We do about three times a year, four days. So uh, one in 17. So it's pretty light, but I'm doing that this week. Um, so that's a kind of typical week. We, we do weekends, one in eight. Um, but I suppose that's why I love what I do really I, I I'd get bored I think doing the same thing every day I mean if I wanted that rep- repetition I probably would have been a dentist so in the end uh, the whole point of being a system-based specialist as opposed to an organ-based specialist is my you know my clinics are varied my endospolists are varied my my and the additional roles are just to keep things interesting you you have a long career and uh, you know you, you need to keep it, it, it interesting and, and getting you out of bed each day and, and, and cracking on with things. Yeah, I think um, 
Well, well, the the only time I've been on sort of gastro was as a pharmacist. I covered the gastro ward, but I think even like me thinking of my future options, the, that's the thing that appeals to me about gastro. It's a mix of you get to do your hands-on stuff, um, procedures, stuff like that, and also you got a big mix of medicine in there as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, gastro is really interesting. On a gastro ward, what sort of conditions would you say um, uh, w- would come under a gastroenterologist? What 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 do you guys manage? Um, so for us, we would manage uh, inflammatory bowel disease, flares of those. We would manage GI cancers, so upper GI cancer, lower GI, lower GI cancer, um, liver cancer, um, you know, uh, chronic liver disease and, and complications of liver disease, um, you know, acute things like gastroenteritis. Um, and we get some kind of general medical stuff as well. So you might get patients with weight loss or patients with anemia. So so we, we manage a, a mixture of things, really. But a lot of can, uh, kind of cancer work, kind of patients with malignancy and advanced malignancy and um, liver disease takes up a lot of our time. Whilst IBD stuff, it is a big part of what we do, but it's a lot more ambulatory and outpatient working mm. for that. And I know within gastro itself and things such as IBD, you um f- things are developed now so it's more pharmacists and nurses and more of an mdt approach as well which is definitely good as definitely. well yeah a pharmacy so i mean our ibd mdt you're right it has a pharmacist on uh, ibd specialist nurses we have a pathologist who helps us a radiologist uh, surgeons so yeah absolutely it's a really kind of mdt specialty um for ibd because of the nature of the cases so today i think um we we mentioned we'll discuss the sort of the new guidelines that you was part of the um bsg new iron deficiency anemia guidelines so just first of all so why is this piece of research important and what why is it important that we update these guidelines so i mean the guidelines are a major guideline um the last one was 2011 so this one is 2021 so 10-year gap they're cited around the world um, so incredibly important and influential and we see a lot of anemia um, a lot and a lot of iron deficiency anemia and um, you know detection and management of iron deficiency anemia is quite important because there's a lot of morbidity around anemic anemia you know it's very unpleasant to be anemic and then also the underlying causes you know it's often a, a sign of correctal cancer um, it can be other causes, other bleeding causes, uh, you know, and especially the, there's some real kind of um, things that uh, throw us off. So, you know, you can patients with recurrent nosebleeds having iron deficiency anemia or, um, you know, 10% of menstruating women uh, are iron deficient and anemic. Um, but so it's really important. And we're trained basically that um, iron deficiency anemia, the patients have correctal cancer until you disprove that. So okay. that, that's where we're at, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, there's lots of different causes of iron deficiency anemia. You've mentioned some of them. So what are the more common causes and what would you say are the red flag causes of iron deficiency anemia? Yeah, so anemia, as what you define, so um, have it, So use your local lab's reference range. So yeah. a typical example, and it can vary per lab, but um, less than 100 grams per litre of haemoglobin in women, less than 110 grams per litre in men in addition you need either low ferritin um, uh, usually microcytic that, that can be blurry if there's other causes that may raise the mcv such as drugs or, or uh, other deficiencies or alcohol use um, and and uh, the other thing you can have low transferrin saturations or you can have a, a low serum iron with a raised total iron binding capacity 
a serum iron by itself is pretty useless. Um, common causes, so straight away, one of the most common things we, we check for, which people forget, is celiac disease. So 1% of the population has celiac disease, yet for every patient with uh, celiac disease we know about, there's two or three walking around that we don't know about. So celiac disease we always check for. Then the next most common thing is lower GI lesions, cancer. Uh, and then we also then, if that is clear, we assess upper GI cancer. Small bowel disease is unlikely to be malignant. So we're quite pragmatic with small bowel disease. So we, we only investigate if the anemia is recurrent or refractory, uh, because sometimes even if there's a small bowel lesion, there may not be a lot you can do about it. Um, so those are the common things or the bleeding things that could, it could be IBD, uh, diverticular disease with bleeding, hemorrhoids, as we said, mm. um, uh, severe gastritis, um, liver disease, so portal hypertensive gastropathy or bleeding varices, um, and, and other things that can affiliate, associate with the GI tract. So, you know, I've had patients presenting with melina, digestive blood from the upper GI tract, but actually it's nosebleeds and, and the blood is hemorrhaged down the back of their nose into their mm. GI tract. Yeah. So we've seen things like that before. Yeah, so the, it seems like there's a huge and wide array of things that can cause iron deficiency anemia. And it's quite difficult, I guess, in terms of the bloods and things such as that as well, because bloods get affected by so many different things. Like you mentioned um, the ferritin, for instance. If you've got inflammation, that can raise your ferritin. So it's not masking iron deficiency anemia, but like giving you a picture that the patient may not have it. And um, even like things like MCV. Um, so anemia is microcytic, hypochromic. And I know that with like chronic diseases, you, you can get these blood results as well. So I guess it's important to start ruling things out and do things like celiac screens as well. Yeah, I mean, like any condition, it's it's a bit like you're a detective and you're just trying to get evidence to prove it. So for anemia, you know, as you said, uh, microcytosis, uh, hypochromia, uh, low ferritin, um, low transferrin saturations, uh, um, you know, low serum iron with a raised, in addition to a raised total iron binding capacity, it has to be both of those together. Um, there's other things as well. So if uh, hemoglobin responds to iron therapy, you know, you get a good response and that would suggest it was iron deficient as well. Hmm. Okay. So thinking about a patient presenting now, um, they've, they've got bloods indicating that they've got um, iron deficiency anemia. Is there any sort of specific signs or symptoms or general signs and symptoms that you'd see in these patients? Um, so you'll get fatigue, um, but that's such a non-specific symptom. Um, you can get uh, shortness of breath, especially on exertion. So you know, people might feel out of puff if they've done their usual walking. Uh, they may be feeling quite lightheaded on standing. They're, people might notice they look pale, which is a common thing. But obviously be wary of uh, different color skins and stuff like that. You know, that doesn't really apply for, for uh, you know, patients with darker skin. Um, so th th those are the main things, but there's also associated symptoms. So, you know, if you've got a change in bowel habit or if you've got abdominal pain or if you've got weight loss, those are things we do worry about. But the, the kind of actual signs of anemia is that shortness of breath um, on exertion. The other thing is on standing as well. So you might get some syncope on standing um, because you've just got not got enough hemoglobin to carry the oxygen around. Mm -hmm. I think on um, BMJ Best, Best Practice, an unusual one that I read, I don't know if you've seen it in your practices, um, pagophagia, if I'm pronouncing it 
pronouncing it cor- correct, Craving for Ice um, was listed as a sign, uh, a I've common sign. Say, I, I, you put that on your notes, and I'd never <laughs> yeah. heard of it before. So yeah. it's not one I ask about. So maybe yeah. I'll ask my next patient. But yeah, it's it's yeah. It, it's, uh, it's it's probably pretty unusual. Um, you do get some people can get itchiness and stuff like that, but um, I, I've I've uh, I've not heard that before. So I guess it's quite difficult because them signs are quite non-specific, aren't they? Yeah. So it could could mean a lot of different things. So in terms of for the primary care listeners, which patients would sort of warrant a red flag referral or a two-week wait to yourselves in secondary care? So age is a big factor. So basically, we want to you know you want the standard workup. So you want the bloods done, including to prove it's iron deficiency anemia, as, as we discussed with the ferritin or the, or the other hematinics, um, and and the important things the celiac screen um and then it's an age thing really so for women under 50 so women of menstruating age let's put it at that then we're less worried about that um just because cancer is still i know there's lots of high profile cases but cancer is unusual under the age of 50 bowel cancer or gastric cancer um men young men with with anemia is actually really unusual so that is something we would suggest keeping an eye on and referring but anyone kind of over 50 or in some places they have different costs 55 or 60 depending on your local agreement but anyone kind of you know, for women postmenopausal, anyone getting into middle age with iron deficiency anemia that is a, a referral uh, on a two-week weight pathway um, to the extent that even if you get routine referrals, we upgrade them to a two-week weight ourselves because they, they need to be assessed and managed from that point of view. And then obviously the associated symptoms we talked about. So, you know, if you've got anemia plus weight loss, that's a real concern or anemia plus change in bowel habit. Mm. I think one one good thing like that's been improved in practice as well is the screening. So the stool sample screening, because um, you see it online, a lot, uh, a lot of people tweet about it and talk about it, how they sent off a stool sample and then, they get admitted and find out that they've got cancer. So I guess yeah, more screening it's, would be helpful. Yeah, It would. I mean, we've got to be a little bit careful about that. I'll tell you why. So we use FIT, so uh, fecal immunochemical testing, which replaced FOBT for bowel cancer screening. So that is patients age. We, we've extended it down now from 55 to 75, and they get a two-yearly kit sent to their house. Uh, but that's for asymptomatic. Well, you know, now it isn't always patients sometimes use that because they're unwell. So I've had patients sit on their, um, uh, they've had their kit, they've not used it, stuck in a drawer, and then they develop symptoms and then used it. Uh, but that's obviously what we advocate. Now, for um, for symptomatic patients, so someone present with shortness of breath and exertion had a blood test and it showed they're anemic, we would just expect the GP to refer that stage if they met the criteria. And we wouldn't necessarily be too worried about uh, a FIT test because whilst FIT tests may in the future help triage patients, the evidence isn't there yet to use it as part of the triage. So we're not expecting GPs to do FIT for anemia unless it's a local agreement. There's some places where they do in Nottingham, but generally nationally, the FIT hasn't been kind of validated for anemia. And iron deficiency anemia itself uh, trumps that. Uh, you know, So if someone's iron deficient and anemic and their FIT was negative, we would still investigate them based on their iron deficiency anemia. Okay, so, um, so a primary care um, GP has referred a patient in under the two-week um, weight referral. So once they do see um, yourselves as gastroenterologists, what, what would be the sort of first-line um, sort of assessment that you, and investigations that you guys would do? 
I mean, COVID changed a lot, so we do a lot more phone triage, but it's the same thing, basically. So I always ask the patient um, why they had the blood test. So sometimes it's an incidental finding or sometimes they've been symptomatic. And that's kind of important because the more symptomatic you are, the more you're concerned. Um, I asked them if they've been anemic before because a certain proportion of people have recurrent anemia and that's managed slightly differently, especially if they've been investigated thoroughly in the past. Um, and then ask for symptoms of avert bleeding. So whether they've had, you know, nosebleeds, coughing up blood, blood in their urine, vaginal bleeding, rectal bleeding. Just because we mentioned that, you know, if someone's got uh, uh, vaginal bleeding for a woman, and even if they're postmenopausal, then that can be the cause of anemia. And especially if it's postmenopausal, then you worry about that being something sinister but in the gynae tract. Um, and then I ask about weight loss because that's an important advanced sign. And I ask about changing bowel habit. And then it, the other things you can ask about upper GI symptoms, so heartburn, reflux, dysphagia. Um, so th those are the type of things we, we ask about sign, uh, signs of obvious things and, and other symptoms. You said, you know, as we discussed, shortness of breath and exertion, kind of syncope, fatigue, etc. So I go through all that stuff. I then ask about their comorbidities. And then one of the most important, and sorry, medication as well really important user with a pharmacy background will uh, know about that so you know whether they're on things that could be causing bleeding non-steroidals yeah. are a real culprit here yeah a lot of problems you know have patients i've had i've seen patients who drop their hemoglobin by half just by using naproxen or diclofenac wow, that's a lot so, yeah because it causes pan small bowel bleeding um so it's important to kind of filter out those things steroids steroid use can be that as well so patients on recurrent steroids for other conditions um, so we go through that. And then um, the other thing I have to do is assess their fitness. You know, we have standard tests and we have backup tests. And the kind of decision around that is based on the person's fitness. And then that also decides their, their kind of management going forward. So I ask about, um, you know, what their usual exercise tolerance is and, and, and um, you know, how fit and well they are and other comorbidities in the background, you know, whether they can lie flat because that relates to some of the investigations, how far they can walk. We actually do something called a, a performance status, which is a, a, something called an ECOG. So it's a European Congress of Oncology. Um, so it's a, it's a standard um, uh, performance status we record, and it's used in all the cancer MDTs. Because whilst your comorbidities are important, you can have patients with a lot of comorbidities, but their performance status is zero, means they work a full-time job and have no limitations. Whilst you can have patients who may mainly have one comorbidity, they might say, I've got a bit of CP COPD, when you ask their performance status, you know, they stay in the chair more than 50% of the day. That gives us a performance status of three. The scale runs naught to five. So um, naught is uh, fully able to do everything. One is light work only. Two is spends uh, less than 50% of the day in a chair. Three spends more than 50% in a chair. Uh, four is bedbound and five is moribund or, or, or actually it's dead but uh, so we don't use five that often so use zero to four so we record that in the notes as well because it's relevant to their management and then once we've we've done that evaluation th there's actually a limited you know we've gone to virtual consultations video and telephone because of covid there's actually very limited physical examination unless there's an obvious kind of other cause so you're more looking at internal things. So it's the next step is the discussion around the investigations. So um, when I was reading the guidance, it, it did have a heavy emphasis on doing more invasive investigations, such as 
OGDs and um, colonoscopies. So which patients would be warranted um, to have these investigations? And is there anything that you'd do before you'd go to that step? So that's a, a really nice segue to, to kind of the previous discussion. So absolutely. So the next step is how, how we manage this. So I explain to the patients that, you know, my job is to rule out bleeding and bleeding due to cancer. And I said the standard way we do this is with invasive endoscopy. Um, and it's much more likely in the UK to be lower GI than upper GI. If you're in different parts of the world, if you're in the Far East, then stomach cancer is a more common thing. But in, in the UK, um, you know, um, lower GI cancer is much more likely than upper GI cancer. So first step would be a colonoscopy. But um, if patients are, um, so I go on their mobility and, and the able, ability to lie flat. So if they can't lie flat or they're unable to mobilize. Um, and the reason that's important is with bowel prep, you rush back and forth to the loo. So if you're unable to do that, then that, that's a bit cruel, really. So if they're fit and suitable and generally under 80, we don't do colonoscopy in over 80 because it, it does, the risks uh, start to multiply quite dramatically. We'll offer them a colonoscopy. Alternative to that is a CT clonogram, which is a, a hybrid. So they have a CT scan, but they have ba some bowel prep and they have uh, air um, blown in to, through their anus through a catheter to help distend the bowel. And they move around on a bed and have a CT scan. And then for frailer older patients, we can do a, a CT alone. So a CT with contrast, but not, not with any bowel preparation. And that's useful for picking up gross lesions, which is what you might want to do in a 90-year-old. You're not too worried about a polyp, which may have caused a bit of bleeding. You're worried about whether they've got cancer. So that's the scale from colonoscopy, CT clonogram, up to a plain CT. We also go on patient choice. You know, if you came to my clinic cell and you go, I don't want a colonoscopy, sorry. Okay, well, we'll do a CT clonogram. So those, those, that's what we discussed, the lower GI. If the low, lower GI is clear, then we look at the upper GI. I always do a celiac screen because um, uh, you can diagnose celiac disease based on blood tests now. There's new guidelines to say if your levels are very high, you don't need a duodenal biopsy. But if it is just marginally high, you do need duodenal biopsies at a gastroscopy. We try and do gastroscopies. There isn't too many alternatives to that. You could have a barium swallow, I suppose, but it's not as good as a, like a CT clonogram. But it is important we investigate the upper GI tract if the lower GI tract is clear because CT scanning is not very good at evaluating stomach and esophageal okay. lesions. Not mm. very good at all. Oh, that was really for that there. So you mentioned so, some people may not want um, to have a colonoscopy done. What, what what are the sort of reasons and the barriers that they mentioned to, to do to do a procedure such as that? Fear, Fear. bad experiences. Mm. It, it, it's, it can take anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes, but it can be uncomfortable uh, and, and it's embarrassing. You know, you're, you're having to take bowel prep and then you're having a gastroenterologist or a nurse endoscopist you know, putting a scope up your backside. So some people just not appetized with that. And, and we fully understand that. Um, we're very professional at doing it, obviously. So, um, you know, we find most patients are very kind of satisfied with experiences because our endoscopy departments are geared up to do that. And endoscopy services of a very high standard and regulated quite strictly. Uh, but yeah, those are the reasons why. Um, I, I'm going to do a little plug here, Sawa. So I've got a, um, a website we've done, which is uh, not for profit. It's uh, called myendoscopy.co.uk. All my patients are flagged to that website, and it just shows you all the kind of um, 
kind of ins and outs, all the logistics of having uh, endoscopy procedures. Um, we give leaflets when patients are sent to them for, for consent and to uh, orientate them about the procedure, but actually having some visual aids, you know, um, pictures online and, and something that people can read on their iPad or on their laptop is, is really useful and actually helps reinforce the consent side, the, the medical legal aspect of consent, which is a really fraught issue if it goes wrong. Um, so that that's what we do and that, that's kind of the workup. Uh, but, you know, some patients just have a CT scan. You know, I've, it's, I've got a case I was just handling before we started this podcast, a 90-year-old referred with anemia. Um, performance states of one, so cycles for miles until he had a fall recently, and the fall may be due to anemia. Um, you know, wasn't keen to do invasive investigations because he's in his 90s, and if he had a complication, he may not do very well. CT scan has shown a ascending colon right-sided tumour. Oh, so okay. he's been put on the MDT and be discussed next week, and I will phone him up after this podcast to tell him that there is something there, and we will have a discussion and get back to him. Oh, okay. So that's really sad to hear. Um, in terms of sort of now that you're a consultant, do you feel like when breaking bad news, it sort of become easier for you, or do you, is it still as diff- difficult as it's always been? It's difficult. There's an art to it. Um, the you know we, we're good at it because we're practiced with it. Um, it's not nice. I think one of the most important things is to reflect back to the patient. So. You know, if you're referred to me, so on a two-week wait, okay, I, I will say to you, I say, you know, do you know why you've been referred? And and you know, someone will go, um, you know, I've been referred because I'm anemic. And I'll go, okay, why, do you know why your GP referred you urgently? Um, or do you understand what the aim of today's endoscopy was? And, you know, then hopefully they'll go, well, um, we're, we're, we wanted to see if I had a sinister cause or a cancer or something like that. And I do mention that in the clinic, but that's our job to rule that out. One thing I do, which not everybody may do, is if I'm doing an endoscopy and I see a cancer, I will show them on the screen. Now, that's a little bit controversial because some people go, well, you've got your patient in a vulnerable position and, uh, you know, they may get very upset. And I have had, I mean, I've shown lots of patients that. I've only had one patient really struggle uh, on seeing that. But most patients, they want to see it because the way our minds work, seeing is believing. And also, there's some evidence from the pediatric cohort that, you know, when you're managing things like this, it's really important for people to see what they're dealing with. You know, instead of you doing colonoscopy, they leave the room assuming it's normal. And then an hour later after the sedation, you tell them, you go, oh, there there was a cancer there. So I show them in the room and talk through it whilst I'm doing the procedure to go, what happens next? And I always say to them, I think one thing that helps is, you know, I'll say, you know, two days ago, you had this and we didn't know about it. Now, now you have this and we know about it. So you're in a lot stronger position now and then emphasize what we do next, which is the staging scans to see whether it's confined to the bowel or whether it's gone elsewhere. Um, and then a discussion at that MD, our weekly MDT meeting. Mm. I think that's some really good advice, um, actually, the, the way you put it. And um, for me, as a, if I was a patient, I think I, I'd rather be told early and be able to see it. But I don't know if that's because we're from a healthcare background, but yeah. So we always tell patients, so I I never not tell them because what I found is if I say to somebody, oh, we've seen something, we're not sure it is, we're biopsying it, um, human nature is to assume the best. So then when you tell them in three weeks' time that the the biopsies show cancer, they're devastated just as much, but they've also lost three weeks to action what they want to do. So I'll actually tell them the other way. I'll go, look, I've taken biopsies from this. I don't know what the biopsies will show, but my experience tells me this is cancer. 
that way they can get their head around it and 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 kind of start talking to family and and, and discuss the next steps and next time they see a clinician in a clinic they have all their questions to ask and they, they've got time to prepare that so I, I do it that way and and i think that is the better way um having been trained to not always tell patients i've found that they always assume the best that's human nature so it, i don't think you're doing them any favors by not telling them until you absolutely know and the truth is you know we know when it's cancer our, our kind of we're very good at knowing what looks like cancer and what isn't and if if it could be cancerous we're not sure i'd rather say look i don't know what this is but there's a strong suspicion of cancer or i'll say this is definitely cancer um so i can tailor the language appropriately to what we yeah. see i could imagine that being a difficult part of being a gastroenterologist just the nature of the um sort of conditions and diseases that come under your umbrella you get a lot of really really poorly and sick patients don't you so yeah liver disease yeah. gi cancer yeah we we have to manage a lot of that but the truth is our population are quite elderly as well so even away from gi you know just doing the gen med stuff you know i've seen patients today in their 90s and then you know we, we have to talk about ceilings of care um, and quality of life. And, and, and actually that needs to be normalized. So one thing around society is we don't talk about dying. We're not very good at it, you know, and actually, you know, as patients approach their late middle-aged into older age, it should be something they think about and not, not in a morbid morose way, but more just what their wishes are so that they can be, have the dignity they want uh, at the end of their lives you know and there's other things we're not good at so you know someone who's got copd now the more admissions they have that's an indication of severity of disease and it means that you know they're more likely to die you know if someone's had a dozen admissions in the last six months that is heading towards a tra trajectory of severe copd and a high chance of dying now if you ask the patients they don't necessarily understand that they'll think oh, i've just got a chaotic condition and i'm in a hospital so you you know it's it's incumbent on us to be responsible as clinicians and to say you know uh, there, there's a nice term that um, Catherine Mannix uses who's a, a palliative care physician um, who she writes some really good stuff and it's probably a mandatory read for med students and doctors uh, her book uh, I can't remember what it's called now I'll, I'll look that up but um, she she would say you know your the term she likes to use is you were unwell enough that you could have died you know you were unwell enough to die um yeah the, the book's called with the end in mind um and that's Catherine mannix uh and it's a mandatory read it's really kind of good read to kind of appreciate that and and that's something i've tried to do more and more i've written articles with people about this you know if if you've got a, a condition and you're lucky to pull through it, you know, someone comes in with severe heart failure and, and they pull through it. You, it's also your duty to explain to them, say you, you've been fortunate this time and next time you may mm. not be. Yeah. 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 I think it's definitely an interesting topic area to um, look more into. Um, so a, a key part of these guide guidelines that I've seen that's changes the sort of um, the treatment dosing um, I was aware of the once daily dosing of iron around four years ago, possibly. It was a gastro reg that was telling me when I was, I think I was a pharmacy student at the time. So it, it's quite a key change. I think NICE guidance has been updated now as well when I last checked. So someone that is confirmed with iron deficiency anemia, what would be your sort of first line management in terms of pharmacological management? So yeah, iron tablets, um, it doesn't really matter which 
but I think we I've generally given fumarate. I think it's possibly slightly better tolerated than uh, iron sulfate, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, um, and we give a dose of one tablet um, a day. Um, that's what we've recommended in the guidelines. The optimal dose actually might be one tablet every other day, but we we kind of balance that discussion out. And I, I tell you why, um, Sawa, that the, you know as a pharmacist that one of the most critical things to consider is um, adherence to treatment. And actually, if you tell someone to take tablets every other day, they're likely to forget. And, you know, it's that balance of trying to replace their iron so they feel better, but obviously not overdose them. So we think that one tablet daily is 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 a right dose. And if they take a bit less, then that's fine. If they struggle with constipation or other problems with iron in terms of tolerance, because having too much iron is horrible, it gives you lots of GI side effects, then I will say one tablet every other day. Um, and that's a huge change. Uh, there's a lot of logic behind this. So they're the kind of hepcidin, which um, tightly controls the, the kind of um, metabolism of iron. So as soon as you take iron, um, that is down regulated. So any additional doses you take that day are just not absorbed and you just poo them out, black stuff, and it causes GI irritation. There's a good evolutionary reasons for this. So iron is required by bacteria to thrive. So, you know, obviously in the pre-antibiotic era, you know, evolution-wise, you know, your body didn't want lots of free iron floating around. So it's very tightly regulated, even if you're anemic, that you can't have too much. Um, so that's the reasons why. If patients are totally intolerant to oral iron or if they've got severe iron deficiency anemia, then we can give them IV iron. Uh, we, we start to use things like Ferinject. Um, there are similar kind of... Uh, um, the pharyngex ferric carboxymaltose, but the similar agents that are just kind of uh, very well tolerated and given quickly. We used to give things like Cosmofer and Venifer. Um, they're really cheap, but they were four to six hours dosing, and there was lots of uh, uh, allergies with them, anaphylaxis and, 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 and rash reactions. And actually, pharyngex or car ferric carboxymaltose are similar. They're, they're only given over 15 minutes. So actually, they are actually cheaper because even though the cost is three to four times as much the drug cost, you can get more patients in. You don't need as much nursing time. You know, so, and one of the things we've done in Kettering is if a patient has an endoscopy and they've got recurrent anemia or they're intolerant to iron, we can give them iron post-procedure. And they're already in the nursing uh, domain post endoscopy they're being observed and monitored so our endoscopy nurses will give them some iron as well so that that's kind of how we manage that really and i think that's that is the major change in the guidance and it's a, a change for the good if you give patients three tablets of iron very few take three they, they, they jump, jump down to two immediately because taking tds dosing is a is a real pain to remember I often find a lot of patients drop down to one because they cannot tolerate two anyway. So the patients have been telling us for years that two to three iron tablets is too much. The only battle we have now is the BNF still doesn't reflect yeah. that. Mm. Um, that's to do with licensing. The, the NICE and BNF are very closely aligned. So we're hoping the BNF will change in 2022 to reflect the new dosing, which is reflected by gastroenterologists, hematologists the world over now. That is the correct mm. dose. 
I think it's quite a significant change. I mean, um, when I'm not at uni and I'm low coming on the weekends or evenings, I still see it so much um, TDS. Um, I am prescribing, so I have a chat with the patient and things such as that. And I think another issue is I was talking to quite a few of my primary care colleagues, um, so GPs and pharmacists. So on the system one and the systems that they do have, if they select iron, the first populated result is a three times a day dosing. So I think that needs to be changed because people get, muscle memory clicking habit so that comes yeah. to the bnf so that if the bnf changes i think system one will change but it's the same with you know actually each trust can manage this so your own epmas you know so i've i've been telling our pharmacy team here that our epma needs to reflect the iron dosing and say that it's once a day and we're working on that um just because other specialties are not nat- naturally au fait you know this is what i do week in week out other specialties yeah. may not so mm. I mean, when you release your gastro twirls, you got shared everywhere with the, the tweets about the iron deficiency anemia. So it's it, it's quite interesting to see how quickly it'll be implemented into practice and how quickly we'd actually see primary care and other specialities as well prescribing once daily as opposed to um, three times a day. Um, so in terms of the sort of management with these oral uh, mind supplements, how long should we tra- treat patients for once the bloods have normalized then? So uh, when I prescribe it, I tell patients to take three months and don't necessarily push the GPs to monitor too avidly because pragmatically they just don't have the capacity to do that. So I ask them to take three months and then they can have a, a repeat full blood count. Um, so if, if they've recovered after three months, then we'd stop the iron and ask the GP to repeat the blood count, uh, you know, after a few months again, maybe three to six months to see if it drops down again or it stays the same. Um, so that's what we recommend. If patients have recurrent anemia, which 10% of patients with anemia will have recurrent anemia, and sometimes you don't find a cause or it might be, you know, some minor bleeding somewhere that is not significant, but is constantly dropping them down, or it may be menstru- menstruation related or other conditions related, then we can keep patients on iron longer term, especially on a, you know, I say take two, three tablets a week, you know, the one every other day, they can stay on that longer term because anemia is bad, but if you can manage it taking two to three tablets a week longer term, then you don't need anything else and, and that's fine. So that's sometimes where we deviate practice and, and keep that longer term. But the initial deep treatment is just three, month, three months. Mm, okay. And what about the role of um, vitamin C and ascorbic acid? Like in med school, in physiology, they always say that aids absorption of iron. In practice, do you really do anything such as that? or? Um. I used to tell patients to consider taking things with orange juice or stuff like that. Um, I think in reality, it probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Um, if someone's have limited, so I suppose if someone's struggling to keep on top of their iron stores and they're having once every other day, then you could suggest taking it with vitamin C or, or orange juice. But the reality is if someone was iron deplete and we couldn't top them up orally, then we'd give them intravenous iron. Um, so yeah there's no harm of it and and i wouldn't i wouldn't be telling my trainees don't do that um but it's not something i think that's widespread because i don't think it makes a huge difference for my in my opinion anyway Mm. okay so overall thinking of this sort of that these new guidelines or just gastroenterology in general is any piece of advice or information you'd want to share with your other specialities or primary care colleagues so get good at detecting it. You know, it, we, we kind of, lots of people ignore it really. So if someone's anemic, it's important because it's not pleasant to have and it can, could represent cancer. And, you know, you may have picked up a, a borderline anemia and that might be the first sign of bowel cancer. And if you 
if if bowel cancer first presents with a mild anemia and no symptoms, by the time they're symptomatic, they may have metastatic disease. So it's really important we better detection. Celiac disease, you know, especially for primary care, it is common. One in a hundred people in this country have celiac disease. Half of, we don't know for definite, but half a million people in the UK have celiac disease and do not know about it. Mm, and they that's can present crazy, with isn't anemia. It? It is, and yeah. it's just a simple test. It costs two or three quid. And, yeah. and we, up and, and management stead easy with a gluten-free diet mm. um and then you know just the iron therapy treatments you know if someone's you know if someone's 33 menstruating female and they're anemic then iron tablets you know give the regime one tablet daily or one tablet every other day especially you know and the final thing to measure mention so which people don't do is when you evaluate bleeding ask about the bleeding so if someone's got nosebleed you're asking about clots because clots represents a lot of blood now it's the same with menstruating women and this may be difficult especially for men you know we we don't have periods but actually if you ask a woman if you say are your periods normal well that's normal for them so they'll go yeah but what you need to ask them is uh, in a 28 day cycle how many days are you bleeding because they might go well i bleed for nine days and, and then you ask, okay, how many times a day are you changing? Because if they go, well, I have to change every hour for four days. And then if you go, are you passing clots or you ever flooding through your, your pads or your tampons? That's sign of heavy bleeding. So the number of times I've been referred from primary care, someone who's uh, a, a younger woman and the GP will say the periods are normal. And I've asked them, they go, yeah, my periods are normal. But when I've asked them, they go, yeah, I pass clots for four or five days. And I'm, you know, that is a, that's not, that's a lot of blood loss then. And it's the chronicity. Your iron stores last for a few months. So as soon as you, um, you know, your body's very good. That's why oral iron works well. You know, if you're if you're losing blood, your body makes blood very rapidly within a few days to top it up. So only when you you then keep doing that chronically due to you know menorrhagia or other blood loss that you then become anemic. Mm. I think that's some really important advice and something that I'll take into my OSCEs anyway um, in, in the history of taking ones, um, what you mentioned. Um, so moving on now, what we asked every, every guest speaker that we have as senior clinicians is, what do you think in terms of medical education or even throughout training as a doctor, what, what, what do you think needs to be improved and changed overall? That's a really good question. Um, we've all got different learning styles. Um there's an assumption that everyone's good at teaching. Uh, I don't think everyone can be. I think there's also the assumption that everyone's good at learning and and, and everyone does learn. I mean, I think you, you've had to learn to be a clinician uh, in different ways. So I think it's choosing what works for you. So whether it's podcast or whether it's uh, written stuff or whether it's, uh, you know, audiovisual stuff, you know, visual stuff. Uh, I'm a visual person, so I do better with that. So it's choosing your styles. There's no right or wrong. You know, someone goes, oh, you must you must uh, write everything down. And some go, well, I, I'm fine with that. Uh, I'm fine with uh, Sawa's podcast. That's the way I'm going to learn. So, so that, that's 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 the way you, you do that. In terms of teaching, there's many ways. You know, so um, one of the things I've learned more recently is the power of stories. So if you tell, so that, you know, clinicians, especially doctors, love telling stories about patients. But actually, there's a lot of sense. It fires different parts of the brain up when you hear a story. And also, if um, you see a case, and you also learn about, you see a case of anemia and you learn about anemia, you're going to remember the case. So you're going to remember the condition. So if I just talk to you about anemia randomly, you're going to forget a lot of it. 
But if I'll go, do you remember that patient you managed and they had weight loss and anemia and rectal bleeding and then we scoped them and they had a bowel cancer and they went through the MDT and they've got liver meds and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to stick in your brain. So the kind of association with a case remembering stories i think it's a really good way i try and teach people and then the new ways you know i've gone a lot into twitter uh, to do bite-sized tweets because some topics are very hard to manage some clinicians are very busy so a kind of four tweet guide on anemia which is easier to go back to and look at is is really useful um and you know that's why i think they are they are popular and i get good feedback on them so yeah lots of ways i think um social media and uh Things like podcasts, as, as we're doing today, are, are going to be, re, you know, revolutionary. Um, but yeah, you know, everyone's got their own way, and uh, there's no, I don't think there's no wrong way of learning. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important the things you've mentioned, and that I think that's the, one of the reasons why I chose to study medicine now after pharmacy. When I was a hospital pharmacist, seeing the regs consultants teach the medical students on junior doctors on the ward rounds, things like that, you can't replicate that sort of teaching. I'm a huge advocate of um, on the ground clinical teaching rather than learning off a book or a lecture. You, it's what made me want to do medicine and. Now being a medical student, I can. It's just so much better and so much more enjoyable. The sort of on the ground teaching and what you mentioned about social media, I think the Americans do it much better than us. We don't have that many sort of consultants such as yourself on Twitter, um, educating, doing tweets such as this, and it's really good because if you think of this, um, the new BSG guidelines, how many clinicians that aren't in gastro will actually sit and read through the twenty-page document? Whereas your tweets, for instance, can summarize quite a lot of it in a couple of tweets, which obviously will drive a lot more change in practice as well, which is really good. I can't yeah. disagree with that at all. I suppose you're right about the engagement as well. So I think mm. we're, you know, Twitter's uh, not many people use it. And yeah. um, there's not many people like me who educate on it. But even mm. learners as well, you know, I, I've always tweeted out my open to requests if there's things people want to cover. But I, I very rarely yeah. do someone tweet me going, can you do something on this or something on that? Mm. And, you know that that's what I want to do, and I do it because I I, I love my specialty, and I, and I want people, to, you know, I want my patients, our patients, to be managed better, and I, yeah. I want uh, our clinicians to be empowered. You know, my colleagues, mm. non-gastroenterology colleagues, and GPs to manage these things better because it, it it's a lot more satisfying when you're managing things better as well. Yeah, and it's, the main thing is improving patient care. That's that's what we um, signed up for these um, careers for. Um, so I, I guess we'll finish on one um, last question. Um, so a lot of students and junior um, healthcare professionals listening in. So for, for them, what's one key piece of advice you'd, you'd give to them? Oh, for the career? Just for career or life in general in the, within the NHS. Um, you have to do something you enjoy. Um, mm. Life gets busy, you know, you've got things at home, you know, family, children, ill health, not even personally, just family. And you've got to have, you've got to do something you enjoy that gets you mm. out of bed and, and gets you in. Don't do things for lifestyle. I, I say this a lot and I explain what I mean. So I don't have an issue with lifestyle that, you know, you yeah. do things that work for you. But you get some people go, I enjoy doing this specialty, but I chose specialty b because of lifestyle now when you're in your 50s and it's raining and it's cold and you've had a really crap week at work you know you're not going to care about your your lifestyle is your lifestyle and in the end you need to be enjoying what you do i mean 
the fact I'm on a podcast talking about gastroenterology is because I love gastroenterology. I hated gastroenterology, but it was a good lifestyle. I will, I will go, well, I ain't got time to do a podcast, mate. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm off. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's what I suggest. And, and the other thing is look at the consultants. Don't look at training. Um, so I'll talk about medicine because obviously it's what I know and, and I'm probably a bit biased about it. People are petrified of the med reg role. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's busy. Uh, yeah. Of course it's busy. But it's known to be the worst shift um, yeah. in the hospital. Well, that's what people say, yeah. and, and, and it's busy, but I don't think the busyness puts people off. They're worried okay. about the kind of decisions and the bleeps and stuff like that. Mm. But I always say to people, I said, stand next to the medridge for an hour, listen to yeah. the, the, the conversations, listen to the decisions she or he makes. Mm. And what you'll find is 99% of them, you will, you'll agree you'll make the same decision. The only thing happens as you get more senior is you have to accept that the decisions are yours. Now, that doesn't mean you have to make terrible decisions. The the decisions the majority you make as you go up the ladder are basic ones. Um, if I've got a really complex decision, I do what everyone else does. I ask people. So I've got colleagues in my offices opposite, but we're not sure about a case. We put a message on WhatsApp and go, we've got this case. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? We had a very complex case on the ward recently. We had a case review between the five consultants to make sure we were in agreement on how to manage things. So it's not it's not difficult. It honestly yeah. isn't. And it's just accepting that and in the end if you end up doing a specialty you enjoy you know you want to be a hematologist you want to be a gastroenterologist you want to be a respiratory physician you want to be a cardiologist it's better to do that on calls wise consultants don't do as many on calls as registrars consultants generally don't do nights or resident nights you know it depends on certain specialties are heavier on nights itu medicine or or, uh, emergency medicine but generally it's not that bad and you know be inspired you know it's a real shame, I think, when someone goes, I wanted to do, I, I'm, I'm not picking on GP here, but there was a drive about 15 years ago when there was a lot more funding in GP for people to go to GP who didn't want to be GP. Now GPs are a really hard place to work because they're really short. And you can imagine a lot of those people who decided to be GPs 15 years ago, you know, now is the time they, they've got to work out, you know, do they want to stick to being a GP because it's really rubbish at the moment and lots of people are leaving the profession and that's why, you know, every specialty will have its ups and downs. You might have colleagues that are unwell. You might be going through a crisis in your own personal life or just a kind of quiet period in your life. And so, yeah, do what fires you. Do what you enjoy. Um, you know, there's nothing that's off. There's no limits anymore. You know, there's no limits to your gender, your disability, your sexuality, you know, whatever you want to do, you go for it. And you, you you know in the modern age we can get you know anybody can do anything if they want to do it in, yeah. within the nhs there's, there's you know there are structural racism and structural biases but there's no overt biases and, and it's only by having more people mm. doing well yeah. hearing their voices representing it inspires people you know i'm hoping that you know you know I'm not talking about gender or race here, but, you know, you're seeing someone who wants to be prominent and, and help with teaching will inspire people coming up when they are in my position to also teach and, and, and you know, do do things that, that do. You know, I, I'm not from a big teaching hospital. I don't have a huge uh, kind of international pedigree or anything like that. And I just do the stuff I want to do. So, yeah, five, do what you love and, and that will drive your career. NHS is a great place to work. You know, it's short and and it can be difficult, but being a doctor, being a healthcare professional, so many doors, you work in teams, 
you you get to meet patients who some of them will you'll remember for good and bad reasons for the rest of your life um you know and and the nhs gives us that structure to do that you know you talk mm. to americans i yeah. mean you know are, are they happier do they have you know are the patients better managed mm. definitely yeah. not i mean the the i know we've got disparities in health in the uk but if you compare it to um, the US system, the disparities there, depending on your socioeconomic background, is just it's, it's awful. Just, it's awful, awful. Yeah. yeah. And I think in terms, I, I know it's a it's a whole other topic, but when people discuss privatization of the NHS and things such as that, I just say, look at the American system, and is that something you really want? I, I've not... got a safe tweet in my drafts, so that I haven't sent out yet. But <laughs> the reality is that I said that for me, if the NHS went and it was private, I'd actually earn more money. Yeah, because but actually, you'll find very few clinicians advocating for the NHS mm. to be abolished, which which yeah. tells you a lot, really, that the NHS provides security and comfort for everybody. Mm. You know, and and whatever you think of how the NHS is and what's going on, you know, if you are unlucky to be hit by a vehicle or you have a se- severe sepsis or you're unwell, the NHS will scoop you up. It will get you better and it will get you out and at the cost of negligible, you know, minor stuff. You, the the thing that really got me, so I, you know, in the US, they had the the shooting in Las Vegas where yeah. people were at a rock concert and the mm. shooter shot from one of the casino buildings and just shot and maimed lots of people. A lot of the people who survived are bankrupt. Yeah, because it's they, really, really to, sad. It's awful, mm. isn't it? You go to, you mm. imagine uh, someone who's 24, saved up some money, goes to a rock concert in Las yeah. Vegas, gets shot, disabled, and now he's bankrupt. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's you watch, right. You watch Breaking Bad? Yeah. So Breaking Bad couldn't happen in the UK, would it? You know, the yeah. whole premise of someone being bankrupt due to lung cancer just wouldn't happen in the UK. So uh, th- that's, that's the uh, amazing thing about that. Yeah, let's just hope in the future where NHS gets the funding, gets the training positions and everything that it really needs because breaking up at the moment, isn't it? It's just really sad for the staff within the NHS. And It is. I, I don't yeah. think the NHS will go away, though. I don't mm. think it will because in the end, um, you know, it, it, it's it's got a very fun place in, in, in the public's heart. So my only frustration is it, it takes the NHS to get into a pretty bad place before people vote, vote to change. So, you know, we when I started as a med student, uh, which is a long time ago now, 97 in Leicester, um, the NHS was in a terrible state, much worse than it is now. Yeah. Um, and when I started as a registrar in 2007-8, the NHS was in the best place ever in terms of funding. And, and now, 13 years later, we're in a kind of downward dip again. So it goes in cycles. Now, in the end, you can do what you can do. You kind mm. of enjoy what you can do. It, it is, you know, especially as a doctor, it's, it's, it's well paid. It's not, you're not going to have a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, mm. you have enough to kind of live and enjoy your life and, and provide for your family. And, you know, you get to do, if you're lucky enough to choose a specialty that you love and you get paid well for it, then there's very few people in, in earth who do a job they really love yeah. and get paid well. Definitely. Well, yeah. Thank you so much um, for for being part of this podcast. I know I've possibly overrun and took too much of your time. So really, thank you. Is there anything you want to say to the listeners before we close off? No, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Um, you're happy to contact me on Twitter or if you want to 
uh, ask questions or if you want me to uh, cover anything on a gastro twirl uh, on my uh, link UK gastro doctor uh, doctor being dr um, you'll see the pin tweet is my is all the gastro twirls um, and I periodically um, post out some gastro stuff uh, as well as all my uh, my accounts mix there's a lot of personal stuff as well I was tweeting about Formula One yesterday after yeah the oh, race. It, was a, it was a shambles what happened after but... shambles yesterday <laughs> so you get a mixed bag with me yeah. but yeah the, the, you're happy to kind of interact on twitter and uh, yeah. to seeing you on there okay thank you for that ajay and we'll put all your details um in the description as well and also tune in for ajay's monday night medic twitter spaces thank you everyone for listening in we hope you found the podcast episode interesting and have learned something from it as well we would like to extend a big thank you to Dr. Verma for taking part once again. As you can tell, Ajay has tons of knowledge and loves educating others. We'll leave his details below within the description and the bio, so make sure to follow him online. As always, please contact the Pharmacist team if you have any questions or feedback for us. We're always looking to improve. Also, please subscribe not to miss out on any future episodes. We're excited about this season and plan to get a lot more clinicians on board and members of the wider MDT. So to keep up to date with our latest developments, please follow us on our social media platforms at pharma underscore scent. And we hope you keep well. And until next time, take care. Thank you.